Welcome back. This is Survived. With Sophie. And Lexi. We started telling our survived story in college and we're moving on to bring you guys more. Through many different topics. Hope you guys had a great weekend. We sure did. Yes. Me and Lexi actually saw each other in person. (laughs) We had so much fun. We did some shopping. We... Went to a couple of places, just and got some Mexican food. Yeah, hung out. It was really fun. And then we had a girls' night and played card games. Mm-hmm. Yes, such a fun night. And we were not working on that night. We were just going to have fun. <laughs> but... Today, we were talking about this case that we wanted to do, and Lexi actually brought this case up. I personally have never heard of it before, but reading it, oh my goodness, this is an interesting one for you guys. And it is all the way back in the 1940s. And... um. So last week we said that we were going to do a surprise for you guys. So this week we will be doing a two-part. So you will get the part one this week, and then next Friday you will get part two. Because this case has so much, and I feel like we just need so much more time to cover what really even happened in this. And, okay. And we're going to take this back to Christmas. So this did happen around Christmas. And um, this isn't to scare you or anything because it's still an unsolved case today. But it's kind of a mystery. So just listen and maybe think about what you think happened about this story. Because there's a lot to get into. Yes. It's very interesting. I... Oh my gosh, my first time reading this, I was like, wait, what? Because you think one thing at first, and then you think a second thing when you keep reading, and oh, goodness. But we will get into it a little bit, Um, you know, just to jump right in, because we do have a lot to say about this case. So, George Sauter, oh, this is the story of the missing Sauter children. If you guys did not know. Um, So George Sauter, who was born on November 23rd, 1895 in Tula, Sardinia, immigrated to the United States in 1908 as a teenager. An older brother of George came with him to Ellis Island but then immediately returned to Italy, leaving George on his own in the United States. It's unclear why he made this choice, choice, but he had kind of a Italian name before he came to the United States, which was Giorgio. But he, we're just going to call him George for right now because he adopted the more American version of his name. And he began work on the railroad in Pennsylvania. 
After a few short years of working on the railroad, he decided to move to Smithers, West Virginia. And a little bit about George, he was an ambitious person and he actually started his own company for hauling dirt for construction. And later on, he hauled freight and coal as well. So as George was developing his business, um, delivering and transporting goods for construction businesses, he walked into a local store and this is where he met a woman. Her name was Janine Caprini, who just came over from the United who just came from Italy as she um, when she was three years old. So they ended up falling in love and having a total of 10 children between the years of 1923 and 1943. They settled in their um, little town of Fayette, Washington, West Virginia. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out and try it again. I think it's Fayetteville. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Fayetteville, Fayetteville, West Virginia. Fayetteville. Yeah. Um, so sorry if anyone's from West Virginia listening to this because we just butchered it. And this is kind of known as a little Italian town in West Virginia. Super cute. Just all, um, everyone got to share their customs there. Just, you know, a nice little town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way it's explained is, like, a lot of the Italian immigrants kind of, like, migrated into that area at that time, so they felt kind of more at home moving there with their 10 children. I still can't believe they, like, had 10 children. (laughs) That's crazy. That's so many. Yeah. How do they keep track of them all? (laughs) I don't know. I guess we'll soon find out. Yeah. However... It is said that the Sodders were, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around, unquote. However, George did hold strong opinions about current events and politics and was not afraid to voice those opinions. He voiced his dislike for Mussolini, even when others in the community did not agree with George's opinion. And in total, by 1945, they had all 10 children, John, Joseph, Marin, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Janine, Betty, and Sylvia. Um, And they all ranged in ages from 3 to 22, and nine of them still lived at the home. Oh my goodness. When this uh, occurred. That is crazy. The Sauter family was doing very well, um, you know, they're doing well financially, and they lived in a two-story home with their large family, you know, happily in love, and they were approximately 
two miles north of town. So at that point, everything's looking up for them. So fast forward to Christmas Eve of 1945. Everything that night had started off normally for the family. Everyone was feeling excited and was just so happy that Christmas was finally around and they were um, just enjoying their Christmas traditions. <laughs> um, and this is when the oldest daughter finally arrived home from work that evening with some gifts for everybody. And they just handed them around and waited for Santa to come. So George and Janine went to bed around 10 p.m., taking their youngest child, Sylvia, with them. They gave the other children permission to stay up with and play with their new toys. And Marion, who was the oldest at the time living in the house, stayed up with them as well. The older boys, John and George Jr., went to bed around 11 p.m., but they could not recall later on if any of their other siblings were still awake at that time around 11 p.m. And um, Marion had also volunteered to stay up with them, and she said that she could get her younger sisters to bed. But she didn't do that that night because she had fallen asleep on the sofa while reading a magazine. I tell you, those sleeps on the sofa, though, when you accidentally fall asleep on them. Best best nap. Mm -hmm. 10 out of 10. But it's always the times when you are not supposed to be sleeping. No. (laughs) It's always like, oh, no. You wake up middle of the night. (laughs) And you panic. Yeah. So at approximately 12.30 in the morning, the phone rang. So this is, you know, Christmas Eve, but technically Christmas Day at this point, but still middle of the night. Janine woke up and answered it, but she didn't recognize the voice on the other end of the phone line. It was a woman who asked for a man whose name was Janine. But, oh wait... It's okay, we can cut it out. It was a woman who asked for a man, and the name they gave, Janine did not recognize. She heard laughter in the background and believed this was just a wrong number dial or a prank call, something like that. It definitely sounds like that. And she hung up the phone. I wonder, was it like one of those router phones? I feel like that could be easy to do, mess up the wrong number. Yeah, like if you accidentally press. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Anyways, um, Janine then kind of just took a walk around the house to make sure everything was okay. And she saw that Marion was asleep on the couch. But she didn't see any other kids um, in the living room with her, so she assumed that everyone else went to bed. So then Janine woke once again at 1 a.m. What sounded like a rock hitting the roof. It was a windy night, so she didn't think too much about the strange noise, but it was loud enough to wake her from her sleep, you know, in the middle of the night. 
but soon she drifted off to sleep again. And this is the scary part. So after um, Janine had slept, uh, slept off, went to sleep again, I'm going to try this again. I need some water. I'm just going to cut that part out. Sorry, Soph. You're good. <laughs> okay. So, at 1.30 in the morning, Janine had woken up, and this time, the reason was because her bedroom was filling up with smoke. So, panicked, she woke up George, and the two of them ran out of the room, and from what Janine could recall from that night, the back wall of the den, which was located across the hall from their bedroom, was engulfed in flames. Oh. I could not imagine waking up to that. Yeah. That would be awful. That was so scary. The lights, which had been on when Janine first alerted to the smoke, now went out. George and Janine ordered their children to leave the house and then ran out the front door themselves. So at this time, Marion had woke up and ran to her parents' bedroom where she found the three-year-old Sylvia and picked her up. And they were able to make it out of the burning home to meet their parents. I don't know how you would leave your child that's sleeping with you in your room. Yeah, especially a three-year-old. What? Maybe, like, they were in a hurry and just, com- I don't know how you forget. Like, I don't such know. a panic, they literally just ran out of the house didn't even think about anything else. No. Oh, my goodness. Goodness. But at, and... yeah, at that point, um, so let's see. I'm trying to keep all the kids straight in my head. So Marion and Sylvia, so Marion was the one who got Sylvia out of the house, right? She picked her up mm-hmm. and ran out. And then... So, so far, we have Miriam and Sylvia that have made it out safely okay. with the parents. So, All right. And then right after that, John and George Jr. woke up and realized what was happening. So I believe they also ran out of the house. Um, and because this case is from the 1940s, there is a lot of discrepancies when we were trying to research this. So... This is just a timeline of what we could all piece together from that night, um, from news articles and stuff. But there was accounts that state uh, that John and George Jr. attempted to get the attention of the other children that were on the second floor by yelling at them before running down the stairs. But they heard one of their younger brothers call back to them. But there was no communication with the five children who didn't make it out. Goodness. So, George Jr., John, Miriam, and Sylvia are the ones that made it out. And the house is gone by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, not gone yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. So, George had tried to save them by breaking a window to re-enter the house. But then he sliced his arm open. He could not see anything through all the smoke, which was in the house, and 
he went in the whole smoke, you know, was going through all the downstairs rooms and the bedrooms at that point. You know, you can't see through anything. He was frantic because he knew uh, Sylvia was safe outside and Marion and the two sons were, they fled the house. But Maurice, Martha, um, Lewis, and Betty still had to be up there cowering in two bedrooms on either side of the hallway that were separated by a staircase. Which is so scary to think about. You know, if you're a father or a parent and only just to get them out. only half your children are there and the other half you feel like they're still stuck inside and you can't do anything about it. Oh, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. Uh, so he raced outside hoping to reach one of them through maybe one of the windows. But the ladder that he kept around the house was missing somehow. And he had, um, so then he came up with another idea that his cool truck, that he could drive his truck upstairs because it wasn't on fire yet and climb um, the top to like reach the windows where they can jump out. He just needed to get in there somehow. So he's just brainstorming. I don't know how a house truck would work, but that'll do it. Um, I think it was like a coal truck that he was using for his job. I don't know how tall that those are, but oh, like a coal truck. Okay, not cool truck. I was like, okay, (laughs) sorry guys. Um, so in all of this frantic he was trying to use water he scooped from the rain barrel but it was also frozen and this is when his daughter Miriam ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department but couldn't get a hold of anybody for an operator and a neighbor who saw the fire made a um, call from a nearby tavern but no operator either responded and the neighbor who drove into town tracked down the chief fire department F.J. Morris, who um, was a version of the fire alarm uh, phone system that they used, and it was called the tree system, where one firefighter found another who found another, and then it trickled down. And the fire department was only two at the times, and they were miles away. So they didn't see a crew until, like, the fire department did not get there until 8 in the morning. So this fire started at 1.30 and no one got there to put it out till 8 in the morning. So, obviously by that point, the house was just ash. Yeah. That is... That is crazy. And the fact that, like, their lines were not working, like, their phone lines weren't working, so they had to use, like, a phone-a-friend type of thing with the fire department crew. Like, oh, you call that firefighter, I'll call this firefighter, and then we'll just meet up over there. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, what? That? How does that work? Not very well. Like, obviously, it took that many hours to get someone there to put the fire out. That is, that was, like, so frustrating, is the word. Makes me very thankful that we have a new system set in place. Yeah. <laughs> Emergency 911. 
like waiting for someone to pick up a phone. Yeah. So George and Janine assumed that five of their children were dead. But when they searched the grounds on Christmas Day, they turned up there's no trace of remains. Chief Moore suggested that the blaze had been hot enough it could cremate the bodies completely. A state police investigator combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. So George covered the basement of whatever was left, like the rubble, with five feet of dirt to make it a memorial for his children. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, saying the cause of death was to fire or suffocation. The Sodders began to wonder if their children were still alive, because there was no trace at all of them in the rubble. They planted flowers across the space where their house had stood and tried to remember the moments leading up to the fire. There was a stranger who showed up a few months earlier in the fall and asked about some hauling work and kind of asked George for help with that because of his job. He went to the back of the house and pointed to a fuse box and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought that was very strange, especially since he just had that fuse box checked by a local power company, and they pronounced it in fine condition. Which, I think that is insane. Um, I mean, back in that day, the fuse box was your normal thing. Like, a breaker box wasn't invented yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that fuse boxes cause a lot of fires. A lot of them, just from what I do for a job. But I'm not going to say what I do for a job. But, um, yeah, I know that they can. So they probably just pointed it. It's just an odd thing to say to somebody that you don't really know, too. Like, I get he's he might have just been a little antisocial, but also it's an odd thing to say. Just a very it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, just a little weird. So, around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became irritated when George declined the offer. They said, your house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Oh. Lovely. Which, I mean, if you're irritated at somebody... I would hope you wouldn't say those words to someone, but very weird coincidence there. Um, He also, this life insurance guy, also said, you will pay for those dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. Because, as we said before, George did occasionally engage in heated arguments with other members of the Fayetteville's Italian community. About, like, politics and things like that. And at the time, he didn't take the man's threats too seriously. Because a lot of people would say that kind of stuff to him. But nothing, you know, would ever come of it. 
And there was one more thing that they found strange when they were thinking back to before the fire. The older Sodder son also recalled something particular. Before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along the highway, intently watching the younger kids as, you know, if they were coming home from school. Which, super creepy. Why would someone be doing that? There was an old man doing that. Like, what? What the heck? But yeah, I think after I heard that, I was like, okay, so this might have been planned. (laughs) I just think that's so creepy. One of the craziest parts, too, about this was no one could really understand how five children could die in a fire without leaving anything behind. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. No bones, nothing. Not even teeth. Um, but... Janine struggled a lot with this concept, um, so she started doing a little bit of her own private investigating. And in this process, she burned animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, and pork bones to see how hot it had to be for them to disappear like that. Um, She knew that the remnants of the household appliances were even found. And those should have melted, too, if the bones melted. If the bones... Yeah. Like, those would disappear. So that was the part that wasn't making sense to anybody, either. It was the fact that all of their household appliances were still standing, and there were no bones. So it doesn't really add up at all. Like, nothing... It's just weird. Why Why does that disappear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if the children are gone, and even their remains are gone... Everything should be gone. There should be just rubble, you know. You couldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell what's what. No, so it doesn't make any sense. If she was able to make out appliances, then there should, if you know, if the children did pass in the fire, you should be able to make out bones. Especially if five children. That's fine. Yeah, that's a that needs to be a lot of heat, and um. So, a little fun fact, in order to burn bones, and this is a crematorium fun fact, uh, they have to be burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Mm -hmm. Their house was destroyed in 45 minutes. There's no way that it would have, like, it wouldn't have been able to get to that temperature. There's a reason why there's, like, giant ovens made. To cremate people. Like, you have to go somewhere special to get that. Like, it doesn't just burn within 45 minutes. Like, the hottest that it could get was probably 500 degrees. Like, there would still be something. And there was nada. Nothing. Zitch. Nope. That is insane. And they were trying to tell them. You know, they were like, no, 
you're crazy, you're wrong, your children are gone. And they're like, um, even though, like, you know, they're like, we're not stupid. Hello, where are our children at? They could be still alive. That's crazy. And no one would listen. They're like, oh, they just wrote off, like, the death certificate so easily and just put fire. And it's like, okay, how are you supposed to do that? Yeah. This case is just so crazy. So, the Sodders tried to put everything together after they, you know, were very much on the side that their children might be alive. So, they put together the fact of, you know, seeing the strange man come by and talk about their fuse box. The insurance guy coming by and talking about life insurance and then threatening George and then the strange man watching the children get home from school and then they found out a telephone repair man came to their house to check out their phone lines right mm-hmm. and their phone lines had appeared to been cut not burnt from the fire they realized that the fire, if the fire had been electrical, it result of faulty wiring, as the official report stated, then the power would have been dead, and there would have been no lightened rooms in the downstairs level. And if you guys remember, when Janine is explaining when she woke up to smoke, there was lights in the room as she was running out, and then the lights went out. She probably saw that person. Which is insane. And, you know, in that kind of frantic moment, you're not thinking about that. So, you know, that small little detail, but... Oh, that is crazy. So somebody cut their telephone wires and their electrical everything. um, So they couldn't call the fire department. And resulting in the fire. So, seems intentional. Someone definitely had it out for them, whether or not they wanted. You know, I know back in those days, um, a lot of people would just kind of fraud people for insurance. So, they would kind of sell it to them just so they could get a payout from the insurance company. Um, where they would kind of write the check to themselves within, like, the policy lingo. Which is a very common thing that had happened back in those days. So I wonder if, like, he didn't want to do that. And this new guy came over and was pointing out weird things. Like, maybe he got mad and did it. I don't know. Still doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Definitely something intentional, I think. At least. However... There was a witness who came forward claiming she saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle, which is used for removing car engines. So, yeah, no wonder. Remember when George tried to pull his coal truck to the house to climb on top of it and grab his children? Mm hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it wouldn't start randomly the one day he needs it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So someone said they saw a witness removing that engine of that car, which is crazy. And then the family, obviously, their house was gone, but they came back and visited their site, you know, because they built a little memorial for the other children there. And one day, while the family was visiting the site, uh, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Janine recalled hearing a hard thud on her roof and that rolling sound. George saw the object and concluded it was a napalm or pineapple bomb, which was used in warfare. I can't believe that. Yeah. Maybe he, when he was in, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't mention anything about him going to war, but. He apparently doesn't like to talk about his past or what anything happened in Italy. He never talked about it. He just talks about his dislike towards Mussolini and that's it. Very, yeah. Maybe something like that. Maybe he saw things that most people shouldn't be seeing, just trying to living in your own country. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, the fact the all these events happening and just hearing everything, you know, right after the fire happened and George is trying so hard. He's like, oh, that's not working. Next idea. Oh, that's not working. Next idea. You know, they're trying so hard to save the rest of their children. And it's like nothing's working. And then they find out later that it was all possibly intentional. You know, the biggest question is, where are the missing Sutter children? There's five of them. I wonder... Right? Yeah. I mean, they. there was a time between the night when she saw that all the kids, that Marion was sleeping on the couch and she didn't see any other kids. And um, George Jr. John heard just a faint yelling, so they can't really confirm if the kids were even there. And it's like the temperature wasn't going to match up within the 45 minutes. Like, it needs two hours to even make a dent. So even if it did make a dent, But then it's like, how did the kids even get out without being detected? You know, like, oh my gosh, what, what happened? (laughs) Unless they fell asleep downstairs and they just wandered out and someone took them. Possibility. Yeah. Hmm. But next came the report of the sightings. Dun, dun, dun. And that is where we're ending part one. (laughs) So we can start off at part two where the sightings came. And we're so excited to share that part with you guys because this case gets wild. Yes, we 
try to find the best place to cut it at, <laughs> like cut it in half. But oh my goodness, this case. Essentially, yeah, because this is our first two Prada. So it'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let us know if you guys have heard of this case before because I am still wondering why I haven't. It's just such a crazy mystery. And and there are still, you know, it's still a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. It's still open to this day. I mean, I, when I was searching for cases, Sophie and I thought like, oh, why don't we just do a couple cases themed around Christmas? And obviously we don't want to get terrible stories for Christmas because Christmas is supposed to be a happy time, not a sad time. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go with a little bit more of like a mystery. And I brought up to her, why don't we do the missing Sadder children? And I hadn't even read through it. It's just like the first chunk that I was reading sounded just so it just caught my attention and I sent it to her and here we are yeah so good and if they're out there solder children let us know if you're still here with us I think they would have passed away by now oh maybe I mean they were born in like 1930 well maybe not Maybe not. You never know. People live for... You could be in your 90s right now. Yeah. Well, 80s, technically. Actually, you never know. (laughs) Well, this is like our first two-parter, so this is super exciting. Um, Thank you guys for bearing with us. And we hope you like our Christmas-themed episodes this month part one yes because we got a whole lot to share with you and you guys are gonna be thinking about what happened that night because now sophie and i are gonna go to bed and think about what happened that night yes i'm gonna be dreaming about this it's gonna be crazy crazy dreams christy All right. And don't forget, if you have not yet, um, please follow our Instagram. And if we you need have you any... to follow us everywhere. Yes. And our Facebook. And if you haven't yet, or if you, you know, have a story that, you know, you might want to share with us, you know, always, you can always email us at our Gmail or DM us on Instagram or Facebook. Yep. And all of you silent listeners, give us nice ratings because thank you that we we would appreciate it a lot. Yes, thank you so much. Well, this has been survived with Sophie and Lexi. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.